Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Poetry Podcast with Christian J. Collier. Christian J. Collier is a Black Southern writer, arts organizer, and teaching artist who resides in Chattanooga, Tennessee. His works have appeared or are forthcoming in Hayden's Ferry Review, the Michigan Quarterly Review, Atlanta Review, Grist Journal, and elsewhere. A 2015 Loft Spoken Word Immersion Fellow, he's also the winner of the 2020 Pro Forma Contest and the 2019-2020 Seven Hills Review Poetry Contest. Hi and welcome, Christian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, I did want to mention that we originally met um, in 2019 at the Frost Place Poetry Conference and that we shared Tyree Day as our workshop leader. Absolutely. So that's where, where we met each other in poetry. Um, and okay, so I definitely I want to, you to start off with your poem first before I get derailed. So okay. I invite you to read it before because I definitely want to talk to you about Midnight Mass and everything about your new chat book coming out with Bull City Press. So um, if you'd like to start with a poem from the gleaming of the blade. Sure. Um, I, I think I'll start with the standard, um, which is a poem that I very seldom read. So and it starts with an, an epigraph from a, a character from The Wire, Marlo Stanfield. Um, and it's my name is my name. The standard. <laughs> The white woman at work's mouth is thin-lipped, never fully closed. My name doesn't fit inside it. Her roving tongue tears the letters apart, reconfigures them into the notes of a song I've not known. Her mouth says the funniest things behind my back to our colleagues. She colors me disrespectful because I refuse to answer to a name that has never belonged to me. She gives me the well of her ugly to stare into. I give her no satisfaction nor surrender. The mute reply. I keep the chapel of my jaw sacred. What's in my silence is a creek filled with my family's blood. What's in a name except all my mother and father hoped for when they knit themselves together. What's in a name except every god of my past still washing the dust from my souls. Every vanished God I give thanks to by going into the tomorrows that will have me cradle in the closets that sit between the gums and the teeth. Thank you. Oh, incredible poem. And it really moves on the page too. It's got long lines and it's all over and um, that always looks really beautiful to me. And it's also really hard, like it takes, it takes time to do. It's not just, I don't know, I think it can look easy, but um, you do some incredible work with line length and um, yeah, like your lines, the first line of that poem is two sentences and it's all the way across the page. The well of her ugly is so good. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask you, 
about the title for your chapbook, The Gleaming of the Blade. And um, if you wanted to talk a little about that and your cover art too, which is Strange Fruit by the artist Nathaniel Austin. Absolutely. Um, the title, uh, well, everything pretty much in, in the chapbook um, had been around for a couple of years and uh, I've been in the process of, of looking at it and then letting time pass and then not liking it and taking it apart again and putting it back together, which I think is, is kind of the usual practice when it comes to, to art to a certain degree. Um, but um, the the last time that I, I started uh, really interrogating the work and, and um, tearing it apart in a, in a different way with a, a different focus, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the artist Mark Bradford. No. Um, Mark Bradford is, is incredible. Um, he's this very tall, gay, black artist um, from California. And I think one of the things that he's, he's prominently known for is using in papers um, as, as kind of paint. Um, and so he, he builds these things up and then he, he uses like power tools and, and pressure washers to, to kind of strip them away and, and get layers out of it. Um, and I wanted to do that with not just the, the text that was there. Cause it, as soon as I started really focusing on, on how Mark was working, um, it, it just kind of clicked in my head. It's like, wait, all text is malleable. Um, so these poems that I've been, you know, working and reworking for years, all of that is malleable too. Like, so I, I got to the chance to, to divorce myself of just kind of seeing them in one aspect. And then I got really interested in it and well, how can I remix them and how can I pull different things out of them? And, um, so that really informed the process. And then I, I, I just started thinking about the, the working title, which had, for years had been uh, POV because I, uh, I, I like thinking that we as, as poets were, we're kind of like film directors. We're, we're behind the camera and we're everything that we're doing is crafting the shot for whoever's on the other side of the poem. And, um, but I just started thinking, even though that that's still very much in the work, um, I just wanted something that, that felt a little bit more accurate for what the collection was saying. Um, and, you know, there's, there's that saying about Duende um, with the, the, the shadow self, there, there's always, you know, that duality of, of, of good and, and um, the darkness. But I also thought about so much of the black experience, uh, particularly in America, um, is a kind of a, a an experience in um, observed brutality. Um, people love watching, you know, the horrors that that happened to us, and um, you've heard the uh, the saying about. Um, burying a uh, a blade in snow, 
and how it, it attracts wolves. No. Um, yeah. They, uh, so you, you bury a, a blade in snow and the, the, the gleaming off of it attracts wolves. And they're like, oh, what's this? And it, it might be ice. So they'll come and they'll lick it. And then they start seeing blood. And like, oh, there's, there's something, you know, good at the, on the other side of this. Um, by the time the wolf realizes that it's their own blood and they're, they're essentially bleeding out. And I think that that also is so much of the experience when it comes, like everybody loves, you know, from uh, blues to, to, you know, the sounds of Miles Davis. And then, you know, everybody loves kind of the things that black people produce and without necessarily actually loving or, or being there to truly support and care for black people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I felt that that was, was uh, a really striking image and it was something that I can kind of, you know, walk around in. Um, and so that's kind of how the, the title came. Um, I did spend a good bit of time was like, should it be the gleam of the blade or the gleaming? Which you're, you're really splitting hairs at that point, but you know, um, but I, I, I think that I, I got the right one. Um, I think that it, it, it's the right fit for, for the work, but, um, also the artwork, um, I started, um, I've been trying to be better about utilizing social media. And when I was looking at our, uh, art initially, I thought, well, let me look and see what's going on on Instagram. Hmm. And, you know, obviously it's a, it's a visual medium. So that makes sense. And, uh, I found an account called, uh, the cerebral woman and, um, the, the person behind that, uh, runs a podcast that features typically, um, female artists and artists of color. And, um, so I just started looking at some of the people who had been highlighted and, you know, clicking on different things and screenshotting different things just to have, you know, some ideas. So I had about six or seven artists that I felt had work that can speak to different themes in it. And then, um, I think actually the last thing that I looked at was the art by Nate and I was like, oh man, this is actually incredible. And I, I stumbled upon strange fruit and I was like, I think this, if we can get it, I think this might be it. And, um, I sent all of them up the flagpole and then with, uh, within maybe a day, Ross was like, Hey, I really love this one. I was like, me too. Mm-hmm. So, um, he had reached out to Nate and via his website and that ne- didn't necessarily bear fruit. Uh, so I reached out on Instagram and we kind of, you know, we did the one and two that way. Um, cool. and so thankfully he, he said yes. And, um, it, it's just such a good, striking piece of art mm-hmm. just on its own and i think that coupled with kind of you know what what the the, the work is doing and, and the poems and everything i i feel like it's it's serendipitous yeah I, in fact i was just thinking since we're on a um a podcast do you want to describe the image for our listeners absolutely so the image I'm actually pulling it up right now so I can describe everything in it. The image features um, a number of uh, slain uh, 
black people, um, as well as, you know, some of our most iconic black people in America. There's Malcolm X, um, Martin Luther King, uh, Rosa Parks, but you're also surrounded by uh, Emmett Till and Michael Brown, you know, and, and more. Um, and there's a boxer who, you know, looks like it might be Jack Johnson. Um, and he's facing this wall of all of these newspaper clippings with these pictures in it. Um, there's a little bit of, uh, on the lower right hand corner, uh, a little bit of the American flag there and there, there are bullet holes throughout. And on the left, um, there are dollar bills with Benjamin Franklin on it. Um, above the boxer's head is a crown that harkens back to, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. And so aside from just like the really arresting imagery of, you know, especially with with race and everything like that, um, what Nate's doing in in his work is he, and this is part of a, a series where he'll put a crown over, you know, say the Nipsey Hussle's head or, or the notorious B.I.G. or, or Miles Davis. Um, so it's a way to kind of pay homage to different black figures in, in history. And um, I was really taken by that because what I'm trying to do in the chapbook, uh, as well as, you know, in, in the manuscript for my full length is I'm, I'm trying to honor the people that I'm writing about or writing to. And uh, those are people who don't often get honored. Um, and then there's a lot of responsibility. I think that if you're, if you're trying to do something like that, or if you're trying to write about living people, you know, there, there's always kind of a, a challenge of getting it right, you know, and whatever that means. Um, so I was, I was just really taken by all of that. And I think that I'm a big believer in, in ghosts and in, in energy. And I think that, you know, we walk with the people that have, have paved different roads for us. And, um, as soon as I saw the Nate's image, I was like, oh, well, this, this definitely is in keeping with that too. Yeah. And I think you really, um, the way you described it was different than I thought you might um will you the way you went from the back of the um paint I, I want to say painting it's mixed media but yeah the way you went from the back to the front was really interesting because like I think my eyes just really simplify like when you see it it's you know a black man with his back to the viewer head bowed facing this wall and then you see there's so much more in it um, and I think that's, yeah, I think you did an amazing job. Um, and I love that you are choosing it. And I love that you bring up social media as a tool for, you know, thinking creatively about how you want to frame your work, um, and how you want to pay homage and like all the different things that go into that. I, I think that's something I did not know what to do. Like I, I love visual art, but when it comes to book art, I feel like I'm at sea a little bit. So I was really thankful that Ross, like Ross found the image for What Pecan Light. Um, 
and I w- it was just really great to be like read that way because it's a lot. I mean, if you're like, and some people get really, really into it. Um, and I just think it's really beautiful too, that you had a lot of freedom there um, to choose because right. Sometimes you don't get to choose. And also that um, didn't take no for an answer or not, not didn't take not getting a response, but you tried an alternate way of reaching out, which I think is really good for people to hear that like uh some of the best moments of my life have been when I didn't take no for an answer (laughs) you know and you it's hard it's hard to do that when you've gotten a no it's easy to be like okay fine um but to be like hey I should try something different I should reach out I'm going to use this this way of um contacting them so that's really good to hear I think oh sure you know I think it's 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 funny that this is, you know, possibly the easiest time to communicate with anybody anywhere in the world. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But communication is still so much of a challenge, hmm. you know, <laughs> because even though you have like four or five different ways that you can talk to somebody, they might really just be active in, in one capacity. So True. the detective work for you is kind of figuring out what that their their primary medium is and yeah it's so true but even, <laughs> even though you know nate apparently pays for a website oh yeah it's beautiful instagram was instagram was the avenue so yeah it's a beautiful website i thought the um that he has a video of him well like working it's gorgeous and it's kind of sped up so you can watch him work on this mural um and i didn't know if i knew his work and then when i pulled up you know and saw like his gallery, I was like, oh, I do know his work. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got some amazing, I hope viewers go check out um, artbynfa.com. Well, they have a chance because it's it's pretty, pretty gorgeous. Sure. So, so nice when um, the art is accessible in that way, especially right now when you might not be able to get to museums or want to go to museums or um, it's like, um, oh, what is it? Oh, the Sable Venus right um yeah where you know getting to like being homebound with a baby but getting to get online and and look at art museums that way is um it's a gorgeous book really cool to think about um so um that that's really cool to hear i did not know the gleaming of the blade i didn't know that at all i just thought it was a really beautiful title and it fits thematically with um so much of what you're doing in in your chat book um i i definitely um was thinking a lot about different souths um and what different souths you and I come from, because of course a reader can't help but be egotistical in their position, <laughs> their position. Um, would you like to read your poem, When the Moon Couldn't Be Found? Sure. When the moon couldn't be found. When the moon couldn't be found, John Coltrane seized my ear with the sound of his horn as my girlfriend's father followed me out of Graysville after he threatened to blow my head apart if he caught my brown hand upon her again. The fog silhouette shook its head while I barreled through its shame. 
It was witnessing, again, a black man stalked on a dark strand of Southern Road. At 3.37 in the morning, I was a blue locomotive, rage blue from one white town to another under a moonless sky. Coltrane was playing, and I wanted nothing but to be the rush of notes surging from the speakers, painting the shaded inside of my Dodge and Intrepid. I wanted to be that free, that anointed by the sweet mouth of a dead god. Thank you. Um, I feel like kids, <laughs> kids these days, um, <laughs> in terms of, um, I don't know, I was born in 85. So I really grew up with a lot of 90s, white 90s country. Um, and, you know, the dad has the shotgun trope and the boyfriend um, is, is like a huge, huge trope in, in that. Um, so, of course, that's like one of those texts I think of, texts in terms of like just narratives um, when I was reading this poem. But, you know, you've got John Coltrane at the beginning. Um, and so you've just got a totally different um, setting for your speaker. Um, and I think that one of the things your chat book does so well is the violent, like the violent intimacies. I was like trying to think about how to formulate this, just thinking about intimacy, thinking about the violences that are embedded in intimacies um, with your speaker and girlfriends and you know what's in what's in the lover's mouth what's in the beloved's mouth what's the you know the fear that what will come out of the lover's mouth um and I think that that was so you know it's it feels very well first of all it feels unique in how you're doing it but also it's in its own tradition um for thinking about race and othering and um, being Black and Southern in America. I think of Tiana Clark's work. I can't talk about the trees without talking about the blood. Um, and that that's just a, the con a context, I should say, for the South, um, Souths. And um, yeah, I just, I think the way you get into the subject through the intimacies is really, really powerful because it's easy to say something like microaggressions or it's easy to say something like racism and then people, you know, frankly, white people like to not do the work and think about what that looks like. Um, so like in portraits, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure in your poem, The Standard, when you talk about a white woman is not not using the speaker's name correctly like not like that that is such a um such an ordinary courtesy is such an ordinary way of treating another person like a human being is to use their name correctly and we know what we're doing when we don't um and i'm in within families right it's like a form of play when you don't use someone's name or it's you know names can do all kinds of things. I have little kids. So I think about like all the different names we call each other and the ones I have to be like, no, you can't call me that or, <laughs> but, um, you know, like 
what what it means to mispronounce um, someone's name very intentionally or to not use the correct name and what a uh, just a kind of casual and uh, casual violence it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember, I want to say it was Celeste Ng had said on Twitter the other day, um, she brought up like when people say I butchered someone's name and she was like, just like, that's so, that is so violent. Like just say like you mispronounce it. Cause if you're mispronouncing someone's name, which is different than calling someone the wrong name, um, mm-hmm. you can learn, you can learn to pronounce it correctly. Like you can learn. And I was like, that's a really good point. Um, like if it's, a, is it a matter of learning or is it in, you know, what is it? Um, so your poems are really thinking around these topics um, and, and also thinking, thinking very intimately, right? Um, so I think that that's something that's just really powerful. We hit on a really, one of the, I think the most important aspects of, I, you know, whenever you, you mention race, like automatically there's a certain portion of the population whose ears just kind of like shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because I think that anytime that you, you mention race, we all think about like capital R, you know, race in, mm-hmm. in, there's a, so much that we don't often have the opportunity to really interrogate or, or discuss that's really underneath that, if, if you get past that, right? And um, like, um, I've had a, a poem I've been working on for years and I've never been able to kind of turn it around and, and, and bang it in the shape, but um, I, in the end of 2002, um, was hanging out with a girl and um, it's December, we're, we're in a place in Chattanooga called Coolidge Park uh, in my car. And, and she's like, oh, it's cold. And I'm like, yeah, it is It's very cold tonight. And she just kind of looks at me stunned. And I'm like, well, what's up? She's like, I didn't know that black people could get cold. And I thought it was a joke. And she's like, oh no, I'm dead serious. Like I thought your dark skin kept you warm. You don't get to ha- experience a, a story or, or tell a story like that if, people's ears just kind of stop working once you're like, so about race, you know? Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to just put the, um, I just wanted to put the reader like directly in it. Yeah. Um, and I think that if, if you give people too much time to kind of think about like, well, you're, this is the space that you're coming into, people are going to, ah, no, no thanks. I'll pass. You know, it's kind of like the, uh, when you're at the amusement park and you're going to like the roller coaster, you're like, if you're like, Hey, we're going to the roller coaster. Like, yeah. Nah, I'll just pass. But if, if I put you directly in the seat, it's a little bit of a different experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. Um, and speaking of names, I meant to say the full title of um, Robin Cost Lewis is it's the voyage of the Sable Venus. When I said, Sable Venus, that's what I was referencing. And I wanted mm-hmm. to make sure I said the whole name of that book because it's incredible and worth knowing. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, did you want to say something about how you use 
um, black spaces, um, like the blackout moments, like in your poem, Sight Unseen? Sure. Um, I, you know, going back to, to what I was saying about, you know, text being, being malleable and, um, I think one of the, the cool things about inspirations, um, and inspiration in general is that it gives you certain permissions. So by taking different inspiration from Mark Bradford and, and the way that other artists were working, um, I thought about how can I implement that, you know, to kind of compli uh, complicate the, the text and, you know, just, just do different things. Um, so in Sight Unseen, the word black appears so much in it that I did not want the reader's eye just to kind of get fatigued from just seeing, mm. you know, black over and over again. So I thought, well, how can I say it, but not say it? Mm -hmm. um, so I thought to kind of redact the, the text. Um, so you just get like the, the black rectangles. Um, and if you are, you know, you're reading it aloud, you obviously you can say, oh, they insert the black body. But you also can kind of look at that as being uh, seizurous. Um, and I mean, it, it brings another interesting thing in there when you're like, they insert the body, you know, what body would that be? And, and can that speak to other other types of bodies? You know what I mean? So I thought that that was interesting. And uh, the older I get, the more I'm, I'm kind of drawn to interesting. Like, I'm not necessarily thinking in terms of like good or bad. I'm like, well, what's most interesting? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that taking that approach kind of leaves more room for other people to kind of step into also. Um, I use the uh, redacted uh, technique again in When My Days Fill of Ghosts. Mm -hmm. And I was asked by the Hayden's Fair Review, they, they did a, a, an online feature reaching out to a couple of black writers um, with the, the theme of what was it like to be black in 2020? And, you know, I, I thought about that for a very long time. Cause it's like, there's so much to say that I don't know exactly what to say. And mm -hmm. um, so I just thought, well, what if, what if I just said whatever I could and, and whatever I could remember. So it, it kind of works as a, um, really just kind of like a movement through the year, you know, there, there are different times of the year in the poem. Um, so just kind of little snapshots, little vignettes, but um, I don't actually say anybody's name in the poem. Mm -hmm. There are different names in the poem. And, but I wanted to, again, like I wanted to protect those people who, you know, they, they, the ones who aren't here with us anymore, they, they can't consent to sure say my exact name you know mm -hmm. so i wanted to give a little bit of space in terms of uh just giving that that privacy um but also again it's like well what if we're we're, we're still in a time where there there's been so much death mm. what if if you take the name out of it 
can these deaths speak to other people's experiences? And I mean, the answer obviously is, is yes, you know. Yeah. So I, I think that again, it, it just becomes more interesting that way. And um, they, when they they published it online, um, they couldn't do the redacted text, so it's just white blank space. Um, if you if you look it up online, which I think is also interesting, you know. That's um, so interesting, huh? Huh? Yeah, it's it actually it felt really, it felt really nice to ask you like. What are you doing with the black spaces in your book? Because I get so tired. I mean, like always talking about like the formal and literal white space in poems mm. or white space of the page. And like, I, that's one of those things I just try to not, um, I'm just tired of it. Like I really try not to say it because um, there are other ways to talk about space. And I think we can challenge, you know, just challenge some of the really easy things, the habits we get into with language. Um, so I think it's really, it's really interesting that they ended up using white space instead of black space. Hmm. Um, but I really love that you're doing totally different things with the black space between your two poems. Um, and it's interesting too, like I know the word is redacted, like my dad was in the military and I'd see, and you know, reports and stuff he brought home all the time with lots of redacted text. So I knew the word was redacted, but redacted always feels like something's not allowed or it's like a negative presence. And these really felt like a positive presence in your poems. They didn't feel like they were nothing, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's different if there was white space or it looked like there was invisible, like nothing there, that is different than having something that there that's covered over. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's just it really, really like, I think you're so interested in the positionality of your reader and it it makes your reader question, like what is what is my relationship to this, this word or this name that's being covered over? Um, and it also just brings up that um, depending on the poet, you know, I think we talk about erasure, but then you're talking about privacy. And so there, it just, it, it does matter what you intend to do. And it also matters who you are and what your relationship is to your subject. Um, yeah, I think that that's just something to, every, every poet needs to think about. Like when you leave someone's name out, um, I mean, it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, Eula Biss has written about this in, in Notes from No Man's Land, like reflecting on it in, in retrospect, like whose names did she leave out? Um, but yeah, I think it really does allow your reader to step in um, in ways, you know, like when you say, like if you had said, my mother or my father, your reader can step in in a different way in some ways to identify and so on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really cool, Christian. And I think it's really cool that you're using it. Like you're not doing the same thing with, with that redacted or that, that black space. Um, also, it's just cool to say black space. And I just, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. That'll be the name of our band. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, would you like to read another poem? Sure. 
Um, you mentioned that you like uh, first poems, so yes. I, will re I will read the first poem. Thank you. How it feels to be black. Sometimes it feels like we are loved by no God. Like there is no gospel living in the gusts of wind that comb our cheeks. The word doesn't unmaim us or leave us exempt from the wolves who always arrive blood hungry. Each day, I want to wake to find no name of someone black and butchered in my throat, but the morning never yields to my request. So more days than it should, it feels like a bounty latched to the bleached rails of our spines, like we are destined to keep dying unarmed and at fault, like heaven, like even angels have abandoned the fat lagoon of our skies and heaven, heaven will not have us. Thank you. I do, I super love opening poems um, because I don't know, it always feels like swinging open the gate to me. Like it really, it does something really um, powerful and it does different things. Um, and like Tyree, Ross and I, we all wanted a different opening poem for my book and um, <laughs> Tyree won. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really interesting like um yeah I feel like it's you don't have a lot of control over what order your reader reads your poems in because so many of us like flip like we do weird things where we read poetry text sometimes we don't always just read straight through but mm -hmm. I feel like the opening poem at least that you'll usually land there on your opening poem at, you know at the very beginning, even if they're someone who has to go back and forward. And I think that's a really cool thing about poetry text. Um, and if you have trouble with attention, like it can help, poems can help you with that um, in a way maybe a novel or prose cannot. Um, yeah, I think it's a really, it's a really strong, strong opening. Yeah, I think of when um, something I got asked in grad school a lot was, what are the stakes? Like, what, you know, what are, the, what are you risking? Um, and I think that this poem, How It Feels to Be Black, just sets the stakes up immediately. Like, it just, it says what, what the book is, what the poems are risking, what the speaker's risking um, right away. That was actually one of the, the rules. Like I had like mm. several rules when it came to, um, you know, reshaping the work um, and into more or less the, the state that it's in now. Um, so if from that, that editing process, you know, the, the revision, um, all of it and, and then like the new poems there were there are maybe three or four new poems um that that ended up making their way in all of them kind of had to adhere to that, those set of rules and um but that was that's one of them like the, the very first one i had was like what's what's the work risking it has to be risking something mm. 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 that's a big that's a that is a big thing to, you asked that of every poem yeah. Um, awesome. What's the work risking? Um, what did I not expect to say? 
And often that's where, you know, mm. the, the poem begins is what I didn't expect to say. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah. I wanted to make the, the city um, a character or, and then, you know, mm-hmm. uh, don't come to play. Mm-hmm. Like, don't, don't, don't be too cute. Don't dress anything up too, too much. Like, mm. um, how should the reader feel throughout? Um, you know, kind of what, cause I'm, I'm curating the space for them to, you know, kind of ex- uh, experience it in, yeah. um, and then also be dangerous, you know, like what happens if you give yourself permission to just, you know, go wherever. I mean, the, the beauty of it is that, you know, if you go too far, nobody ever has to know that you can, <laughs> you can keep that in the word document, you know, and it doesn't have to go anywhere beyond that, but. I think often it's you wanna you wanna see what what's on the other side of that conversation if if you're just willing to to put yourself in that space. And um I think um I don't know, I, I think there there are things that like I know um when it comes time to, to read aloud, you know, especially now where we're in the age of of you know, everything is everything that makes, you know, a certain part of the, the people we share communities with uh, uncomfortable falls under the umbrella of critical race theory, you know. And um, so we're in an age where people are really kind of in an uproar of that. And obviously that that is in direct response to uh, one, the election, but but to um, George Floyd. And it's weird that even that harkens back to George Floyd. Like George Floyd had really nothing directly to do with that. You know what I mean? Um, But the the outcry and the response and the mobilization and everything like that, like all of this really is to kind of quell all of that, which is something that's very old. You know what I mean? So there are things that I know when it comes time to read aloud, there's probably going to be some interesting conversations that, that fall from that. Um, is that necessarily a bad thing? I don't think so. You know, I, I think that being able to have these dialogues and, and interrogate, uh, of all things are, you know, I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Um, I'm so glad you, you, uh, offered your, your rules or like the things you asked of your poems, because that's not a question I would have known to ask or, um, but this so helpful and so good to hear um yeah i love those those process kind of questions things we ask of ourselves like i i think it's um louise glick's the the four books she has together in one and um she talks just she has a note at the beginning about like how each book asked a different question or like they each, they, they were things that she was interested in doing, like, or said like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm interested in fragment for this book. I'm interested in this kind of thing. Um, and I think it's good to just be really conscious, like to ask yourself those questions for real, like um, to make it concrete for yourself, um, like to vocalize. I think it's hard to vocalize which is why it's so hard for artists to write artist statements when they need to apply for funding and stuff. Like it's hard to articulate your work and what you're doing, but it is so worthwhile every time. I I don't know. Every time I hear somebody complaining about that, I'm like, you don't understand. This is so good for you to clarify what you're doing in your work. 
like this will help you talk about it. It will help you apply for other things. Like, I know it's a pain, like, yeah, it's just a little like giving birth, but like you're giving birth to yourself and you need to do it. (laughs) Sorry, tangent, but it's true. (laughs) I love it. That's great. Um, Christian, today's your birthday and you recently got married and you have a book coming out. So maybe this is an obvious question, but um, what are some things that are giving you joy right now? Oh, um, you know, joy is always something that's interesting to me. Um, I feel like I, um, I kind of experience the world in a, in a, in a strange way. Like I'm not very outwardly excitable. Um, like I, I, I tend to keep my emotions, you know, close to the vest and, um, but you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying family. And I know that sounds really kind of like, like, oh, but no, I mean, it's, um, I realize more and more how essential it is. I mean, just, just how much of a blessing, like, I don't take it for granted at all. Just, um, how many people have, have showed up when I needed them to, and, and how many people have, you know, been willing to, to sacrifice, uh, in order to, uh, help me arrive at different places and, and obtain different things. And uh, now I'm in a position where I am able to kind of, I'm not sure if, if paying that back is the right word. Cause I think you, you, you never really do, you know what I mean? Like you, ne- you never really play, pay it back, but mm-hmm. I think just being able to kind of contribute and, and further that work and that, and that grace, um, that's been giving me a lot of joy. Yeah. Um, I think that I'm at my best when I'm at service for other people. Um, and I've been able to do that. Um, so that's given me joy, obviously. Um, my, uh, my marriage um, is, is giving me a lot of joy. And it's like at least a couple of times a week, I'm like, man, like I'm really married. Like it's still. <laughs> and um, yeah. I had a conversation with my, my wife about it. And, uh, I was like, you know, it's, it's, it's strange to me that it's, it happened. And she's like, well, I think, you know, that's, that's kind of normal. I'm like, well, I mean, it's different, but it's like, I never really thought, I know some people are like, you know, I'm eight years old. I know I'm going to get married. Like I've, I've never been like that. I have never really thought in terms of like definite things like, oh, this surely will happen. You know what I mean? Um, I don't like setting myself up with, for disappointment and I try not to live with expectation. Um, so just the fact that like this, you know, blessing has occurred and it's kind of like, wow, this is, this is kind of crazy to me. Like I never really allowed myself the space to just really kind of ponder or, or imagine what that would be like, you know, yet here I am. Mm-hmm. Um, that's giving me joy. Um, a lot of visual art, um, and visual art has been a, a joy of mine for a long time, actually. Um, I originally wanted to uh, be a visual artist. Um, and then, you know, the writing thing kind of happened and mm. visual art kind of was placed on the back burner. But uh, I'm, I'm really interested and I'm, I'm kind of finally moving away from, from Mark Bradford. And um, I'm getting more and more into the work of Jack Whitten and... Uh, 
the, the idea of, of black abstraction is really fascinating to me. So I'm, I'm interested in what I can do to bring some of that and, and some of the, the approaches that these people have, have utilized into my work. Um, but also, you know, it's it's October right now and horror movies are, are giving me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always interested in, in kind of English genre um, and, and, you know, because the genre always says something about our society. Yeah. Um, I think that horror functions a lot like poetry where, um, you know, I could tell you that this is, this is a poem about birds. And then when we get into it, you're like, oh, well, it's not really on the other side of the <laughs> poem. Once we get past the birds, we're actually talking about something else. You yes. know what I mean? And I think that horror functions a lot in that same way. And it's like, well, yeah, this is something that on face value is about, you know, a, a person with a um, hockey mask and a machete going around the woods. But once we get on the other side of that, there's really different points where we're talking about, you know, um, anti-abstinence uh, and and you know, the wiles of, of youth. Um, and that's fascinating to me. Um, how can we use one thing to get at another thing? Uh, you know, I, I always think that that's really interesting. That's super cool. I love you connecting like heart and poetry that way. That is so interesting. Cause, um, I love that the haunting of Hill house is one of my favorites and shows, and it is so deeply poetic you know what what happens with the house in that um and I mean you know talking about ghosts ghosts in your writing ghosts in um horror I mean it's just so interesting for thinking about the family too um I know for a fact you recently watched Midnight Mass right absolutely what do you think well, I'm a, I'm a big Mike Flanagan fan. You know, you mentioned Haunting of Hill House, which was uh, another one that he helmed. Um, I I like, well, I, I like the way that, that Mike Flanagan works in particular because it's it's such a, a layered experience. And um, when Haunting of Bly Manor came out last year and I heard so much disappointment about it. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I told my wife, I was like, they're disappointed because they didn't, they didn't get it. They, they came in with a certain expectation and because that expectation was not met. And Mike Flanagan had no interest whatsoever in meeting that expectation. <laughs> they were, they were expecting this to be a, a, you know, another haunted house. It's a ghost thing. It's that. And what Mike Flanagan was interested in giving us was this is an interrogation of what it is to be a ghost. Mm. Um, who is a ghost? Who isn't a ghost? What are the ghosts that we carry? That's what it is. Um, and I think that this was Midnight Mass was another example of interrogation. And if if I don't want to give anything like away for people who haven't necessarily seen it, but you it, it has something, you know, supernatural in it. Um, and if you are looking at it on face value, you're like, oh, well, this is, this is a insert that thing type of story when really 
what Mike Flanagan is interested in doing is is showing us the horror of us. Hmm. You know, it's again, it's it's we're we're presented with this thing, but the real horror is actually what's on the other side of that thing. Yeah, and um, I think that that's really fascinating. I also think that um, he's been doing really interesting things with repetition. Mm-hmm. You no, know, so it, it's it's a, there's a craft component, obviously, and and we got it in a really pronounced way with uh, with Bly Manor. But I think the way that he he utilizes it this time around is really kind of fascinating, and it's like because we're we're using whether we're looking at repetition in terms of like poetry or in in horror in in this particular story, we're using repetition to to do different things to add tension, to, you know, hearken back to something, you know, that was mentioned before. Um, so this like kind of wonderful, like circular emotion that that's kind of moving throughout it. Um, and I think that that's really smart and that's really fascinating. And it's like, I mean, I think that if for anybody who's interested in, in putting together a, a collection, you know, in, in terms of poems, it's like, well, yeah, there's a lot there. How, how can I move through a theme that way, you know, it kind of show different aspects of it. So I think there's always a lot there that's just really smart that if, if you're interested in, in our practitioner of, of other mediums, there's a lot there for you to kind of like interrogate and, and consider implementing in, in your one's own work. Yeah, no, I think so too. Um, it felt like very, very much a, um, film for poets and writers <laughs> people i thought the music was really beautiful too i have to say um that kind of like swept me up um but it's really i mean i love your connection of of horror to poetry and with midnight mass there's that weird phenomenon that there are two different like discourses happening there are two different languages in a community, it's like the people in the church have one way of speaking about things and the people outside the church have another. And so like the, they're both talking about the same phenomenon, but in different ways. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting thing. Um, and I think that's what we're a lot of times interested in, in writers, like, you know, how, how things are spoken of um, and where our conversations meet and like, what are the objects? and um yeah i mean just the fact that there's like a really obvious word that's never spoken the entire the entire you're like waiting and you're like oh my god they're not gonna say it they're not gonna say it. like the whole time is is really interesting i like cried so hard at the end too oh my goodness ridiculous yeah um but it was like the bad kind of catharsis because like what it was like a good kind of catharsis but then I was like, I, I need to watch something funny. I can't just go to bed like this. And my partner was like, I'm tired. And they went straight to bed. So then I went straight to bed and I was just like, like to cry really hard and then go straight to bed. <laughs> Do not recommend. Uh, but it was good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think exactly what you're saying about um, Mike Flanagan as a director and um, not, not delivering like the expectations also the way people it was set up like oh if you you know basically signaling like if you liked 
Haunting Hill House and Blind Manor. Here's this by the same director. And it's like a different animal. Like it's so mm-hmm. different. Um, so that's interesting too. It had some kind of M. Night Shyamalan vibes to me as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. I think um, this is going to get me like in trouble with, with some of the, the horror heads out there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it seems like now, you know, when you're, we're talking about contemporary horror, people automatically are like, well, you know, Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele does these great things. And it's like, I mean, I've, I've, I saw Get Out, I saw Us, and I don't really think that Jordan Peele does horror films. I think that he has great atmosphere, a great, you know, eye for that. But I feel like whenever things get truly like rooted in, in something that that's horror-esque, uh, he tends to bail out. And that that is interesting that that aversion to just like fully committing, you know, this is fascinating to me. And um, whereas I feel like Mike Flanagan is somebody who kind of understands the the rules of horror and is interested in, in subverting them in, in interesting ways and mm-hmm. uh, in ways that are kind of like new or, or at least fresh, you know, and um, that's more fascinating to me because it's it's. I think with Blind Manor in particular, well, really going back to Haunting of Hill House, I feel like he kind of hit on something there that he's been coming back to. And it's it's horror that is interested in kind of living in uh, the head and then ultimately affecting the heart. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's fascinating. I've, I've not seen that maybe ever. You know, like not in a, in a real way where like it, it's evoking like true emotion from from people who are watching it. Yeah. Um, and that's really fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. The way we're haunted by our narratives and our histories, too, I think is. Um, yeah, like the. In the Haunting Hill House, too, with like the ghosts, the ghosts that are the self. Um I just so pretty powerful, I think, to think about. Um, well, thank you for indulging my talking about Midnight Mass a little bit. <laughs> no, obviously. I mean, there are there are what two poems I think in the chapbook that are are based on on horror films. So this yeah. is very much like my bread and butter, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. Would um, would you like to close this out with a poem? Yeah, absolutely. Let me see. Actually, why don't uh, why don't I do one of those horror poems? Yes. Um. So, in the movie Friday the Thirteenth, Part Eight, um, which is <laughs> Jason takes Manhattan, um, there's a, a character uh, by the name of Julius Gaw, and I. This actually kind of started my my horror series um, that I've been been writing on and off. Um, where it's like I want to write poems about like the black characters in horror films. Hmm. Um, Julius Gall is like the only black character in Jason Takes Manhattan, which is fascinating because the whole like last act they're in New York. But hey, whatever. Um, so uh, I mean. The movie's been out for like 30 years, so if, if you haven't seen it by now, I mean, 
there could be some spoilers in this, but um, I this think is you're good. <laughs> this is the prime time to watch it, though, if, if you can you can track it down. So this is Elegy for Julius Gaw. Even though I've seen the scene well over 30 times and know how it ends, I still have hope in my cells. This will be the time some miracle will reach through the screen and save him. Though he faced death on the ashen clavicle of that Manhattan building before the lone audience of the moon, he will somehow will his exhausted body into slipping that fatal Sunday punch to escape free unsmudged and alive. Perhaps it is just the world refusing to let me be, to stay out of my head for the runtime of the film, but I also cannot help thinking about the other black boys not hired by a casting director to be rendered headless on film. Those now forever anchored to being young, whose families were elected by the God of circumstance to carry the murders of their sons or fathers or brothers the remainder of their days. How many times have I seen the soul of someone black exit the pores of their tiny mosques of muscle and flesh, vacating this life? Each of their final moments was a horror film I did not pay to see and cannot let go of. In some way, isn't this the nature of being black in America, always residing so close to terror, we are wounded but never surprised when it pitches one of us into the limbo of its maw. Me, I want the alternate ending, not just for Julius, but for all the other young black men buried in my brain, each one tucked into the pink soil of my mind. I want the alternate ending, a burst of lightning blossoms and brings them life again, and they gaze into the black eyes of their fates and say, take your best shot, motherfucker before punching their hands bloody, staving off the afterlife's hungry invitation. I want the alternate ending where they find their ways back into the graces of their most loved. In the distance, night bleeds away and a brand new beginning sets upon them as the credits cascade down the screen. The language left on their breath is the, is the antithesis of horror, of anything close to horror. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you. If you would like to read more of Christian J. Collier's work, please check out the show notes for episode 13. We'll, we will have a link to pre-order The Gleaming of the Blade from Bull City Press and also a link to Christian's website. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>